Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, we're talking about the use of zinc in treating COVID-19. So today uh, we're we're being pulled back into the world of COVID, and I'm reminded of the uh, Godfather Three. Just when I was out, they pulled me back in, sort of thing. Um, but uh, this was a study that's really hot off the press in clinical infectious diseases, and surprisingly, did not get a lot of lay media play, which which kind of surprised me, to be honest with you. Um, but it is looking at using a micronutrient for the acute treatment of of COVID-19. So yeah, I mean, just when you thought we were never going to talk about COVID-19 again, um, and the, the unfortunate fact is it's still floating around there. It's still causing problems. Problems. You know, certainly in, in my area of the country, in the world, you know, certainly we've seen where especially vaccinated patients, the virulence has gone way down, but, you know, people are still getting pretty sick from it, especially if they're immunocompromised or have other issues. So uh, this is still a big problem and, and, and good therapies are still needed. Certainly, you know, as you all remember, it seems like a million years ago, but it was only a couple of years ago where, you know, we were basically throwing everything but the kitchen sink at, at patients. Um, I remember our first few patients admitted to the ICU with COVID back in 2020, we were trying hydroxy chloroquine and all this other stuff just because we literally had nothing else to try and uh, you know some retrospective studies have found a benefit I think if we've learned anything in the uh, pandemic we've learned that uh, retrospective studies really should not be a lot uh, relied on unless unless there's absolutely no other choice uh, to determine pharmacotherapy for things just because there's so many uh, you know issues and problems that can go wrong with them and so you know the we're going to today talk about zinc and in its use in the, uh, the treatment of COVID-19 disease and again zinc was thought of even during the beginnings of the pandemic as a possible treatment, especially given with hydroxychloroquine. The thought was that hydroxychloroquine increases zinc penetration into the cell, which basically would increase the, the immune response. It basically activates white blood cells and all that other stuff. Now, as crazy as that sounds, and, and I heard a number of people say, well, you know, hydroxychloroquine is the gun, zinc is the bullet sort of thing. And I, that never made a whole lot of sense to me. But, you know, it is true that zinc does play a central role in the function and integrity of the immune system, particularly it it helps mature white blood cells and helps in increase their division and multiplication. So, you know, we know we've known for a while, especially in, in animal models, that zinc can have some effect on uh, the treatment of viral illness. And, you know, you know I'm sure you know, the pharmacists listening, you know, know about people who run in and take a whole bunch of zinc at the first time of first sign of a cold. And there is evidence suggesting that helps. But, but I always was kind of thought that, you know, you have to take basically a boatload of, of zinc and um, it at most decrease symptoms for a day or so, even in the best clinical trials. So, I mean, I never thought that, that zinc was particularly helpful in treatment of, of you know, rhinovirus or other common colds. But again, there, there is some, some biological plausibility that uh, zinc could play a role in the treatment of COVID-19, again, knowing what we know about it in vitro as well as in vivo. So throughout the first couple of years of the pandemic, of course, there were a number of retrospective studies that suggested maybe there was a role for, for uh, zinc in COVID-19. Uh, there was a few small randomized controlled trials, but uh, basically all these studies had numerous methodological limitations, again, small n, the fact that they weren't prospective controlled studies, they weren't blinded, you know, it made interpretations of those studies very, very, very tricky. And they also used wide ranging doses of zinc and, and you know, mostly micronutrients are fairly safe in, in people, but especially in patients who are older with, with impaired renal systems, uh, zinc can build up and can actually cause zinc toxicity. And I've actually seen a case of that. Uh, it's, it's only one case I've seen in all the years I've been a pharmacist, but it definitely can happen in patients. So this paper was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases, which is the number one infectious disease journal. So I'm sure these guys would not have lightly published this study had they thought there was any real serious problems with it. But that doesn't mean bad studies don't get published in good journals. So we need to review the paper ourselves. It was a study done in Tunisia. And 
of course, that's always, you know, I wouldn't say it's a red flag, but it's something you always have to keep in mind, you know, the external validity of the study. Are patients in Tunisia similar to the patients that I see in the United States? And that's something you have to think about as, as, as we go through the study. But the objective of these investigators from Tunisia was to evaluate the effect of zinc supplementation on non-critically ill patients with COVID-19. But their hypothesis was that it would reduce 30-day mortality and the need for intensive care admission. So they shot high with their outcomes. They didn't just look at, you know, decreased symptoms or anything along those lines. The name of the study was the Vizier study. It was a prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, uh, again, conducted from February 2022 to May 2022. So actually fairly recently. Uh, the protocol was approved by their IRB and, and again, done in, in, in several Tunisian hospitals, including some university referral areas. Uh, patients were eligible if they were over age 18, had a positive diagnosis for, for COVID-19, which meant they had to have a positive PCR, so they did not use the antigen test. Uh, they actually had to have a positive uh, a PCR to be, to be diagnosed. They could have an, uh, a rapid antigen screening test, but that had to be confirmed with a PCR test for being in the study. In uh, appropriate patients, they did do diagnostic imaging, particularly CT scans if they had need for oxygen. And that was a lot of these patients. So many of them did get imaging that were concluded a CT scan. Uh, they had to have symptoms within seven days uh, prior to inclusion of the study. Uh, and patients under zinc treatment and with known hypersensitivity to zinc were excluded. Of course, I don't know how that works because you need zinc to live. So it's kind of hard to be uh, allergic to it. Uh, severe comorbid conditions, including heart, liver and renal failure, which was defined as an EGFR of less than 30 mils a minute, and malignancy. So again, you know, it's, it's worth stopping to say that they excluded a large swath of patients that are at high risk for progression to severe COVID, that they just weren't in, in the study because they excluded them. So keep that in mind. Patients had to be able to take pills appropriately. Uh, they uh, couldn't have significant cognitive impairment, and they couldn't immediately need ICU admission because that's one of the things, outcomes they wanted to look at was a decrease in, in, in ICU admission. And in their hospitals, as in my hospital, what that really meant uh, as far as COVID is concerned, that you needed high flow nasal cannula, uh, non-invasive uh, um, ventilation or invasive mechanical ventilation, or the use of, of vasopressors and inotropes. And those are the patients who were admitted to my ICU as well, um, and they were excluded from the study. So basically, you had, a, you had to be kind of sick, but not super duper sick when, when, when you hit the door uh, to be in the study. They collected a wide variety of data on these patients, demographic, clinical data, age, gender, other comorbidities. Uh, and one important thing is they did look at vaccination status. And again, most of the therapy Therapies that we have, including uh, Paxlovid, we have very little data on patients who are who are. Uh, vaccinated. Most of the people in the original Paxlovid study were not vaccinated. So that's an important key piece of this paper is that they did look at uh, patients who had a completed vaccination status and they could receive up to three doses of COVID-19 vaccine. So, I mean, you know, again, not just the, the two immediate one, but at least the first booster that they looked at. So again, not exactly what we're doing in uh, late 2022 in the United States, but pretty close. And I thought that was pretty good. They also then devised a severity score that, you know, for, for a couple of years now, we've used the World Health Organization scoring criteria, and they did something a little bit different. Uh, they used, they divided patients into three grades. So patients who had grade one were asymptomatic. Now, again, if they were asymptomatic, how could they be in the study, right? Now, you know, but if they were in, in uh, stage two, they could be symptomatic without oxygen support and grade three patients who were symptomatic with oxygen support, which of course is the, the main patients you're going to want to see, especially in inpatient. So, you know, most of the patients who get admitted with COVID are probably 
probably going to require some sort of level of oxygen uh, support as they go along. Uh, they were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to zinc or placebo. The dose of zinc was 25 milligrams elemental uh, BID, and that is worth noting that that is significantly higher than the RDA, um, probably by an order of three or four, so keep that in mind. And uh, they did that twice a day for 15 days. Patients who rolled in placebo basically received an identically in encapsulated placebo. And so, you know, again, they should physically look the same, which is nice. I, I still argue a little bit, you know, uh, if, if you've ever taken zinc, you know, it can have kind of metallic or bitter taste. So one wonders if it was, you know, if they truly were able to blind the study. But, but again, I think they did a pretty good job blinding from patients as well as they possibly could. They received all other supportive care according to current guidelines, and that included things that we would use in patients as well as, as intravenous corticosteroids, prophylactic anticoagulation, whatever oxygen they needed, and other treatments is, is clinically indicated. Now, it is worth noting that uh, they did not use in any of these patients remdesivir or Paxlovid. So the current antivirals that are, are largely used in the United States in patients with early uh, COVID, they, they were not used on. So again, another external validity issue that we might have is that you know we really don't know what's would do in patients who have received any of these antivirals, something worth, worth discussing. The outcome criteria, the primary outcome uh, measure was death and ICU admission rate combined at, within 30 days after randomization. And so basically they had two co-primary outcomes. Secondary outcomes included length of stay in the hospital uh, and then the safety of zinc. Um, now, again, not all patients had to be in patients. So you could be an outpatient and be in the study. So I, I think that is actually a strength of the trials that they didn't just look at inpatients or didn't just look at outpatients, basically. They looked at kind of all comers who, who might meet the, meet the criteria. And so an outpatient some of their secondary outcomes included duration of symptoms and then the need for hospitalization or, or oxygenation therapy. Stats were pretty, uh, uh, actually fairly straightforward. I mean, I, I, I don't, there wasn't a lot of weirdo stats tests. They used the good old fashioned T test for a lot of their outcomes and they used, uh, you know, a uh, Fisher's exact test. And again, some, some very, very standard basic statistics. I like that. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it makes it, uh, in my opinion, harder to do funny business when you're using basically standard statistical tests uh, for your outcomes. So I think they did a good job there. They did look at a wide variety of subgroups, um, you know, age, gender, comorbidity, a variety of different diseases, um, and then the, their clinical score. So they did break patients down into a number of that, and they did uh, give us the results on that in, on, in a forest plot in the results section of the study. So that's kind of the background. What did they find in the study? Did zinc have any role in, in the treatment of, of COVID-19? We will get the answer to that question as soon as we hear from our sponsor, CE Impact. CE Impact's memberships help you connect your learning to practice with unique education like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. So we are back talking about a paper published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. Uh, um, we'll have the link to that paper and the um, editorial in our show notes, which is free for, for the getting. Uh, they, again, like it's a COVID paper, so it was nice of them to do. Um, and we're looking at the results of a study that looked at zinc in the treatment of, of COVID-19. So uh, as far as the results in this study, they screened 1,200 patients, uh, 513 were eligible and 482 were enrolled. They had 190 patients treated as outpatients and 280 patients is treated as in patients. So about 60% of patients were hospitalized when they were enrolled. So um, um, in my world, that's going to be a little bit more important, but that's that's something worth noting. The mean duration between symptoms and initiation of the study was about four days, four to five days. Uh, taking a look at the background characteristics, there were a little couple things to kind of keep in mind. A mean age was 54 in both groups. So that was pretty good. About 52% of patients were male, but here's one big difference that the mean body mass index in both groups was 27. And so again, keeping in mind, 
find you know the the external validity um you know again we'll you know that i think that's that's one of the things that we know obesity plays a big big role in the outcomes associated with covid uh so one wonders if if that might have an effect uh, trying to translate that data to the united states type 2 diabetes again numbers were i think pretty low compared to what you might see in in the united states and of interest the zinc group had only 16 percent of patients with type 2 diabetes whereas the placebo group had 22 percent of patients so again you know a, a known risk factor for developing severe disease was slightly lower in the zinc arm compared to the placebo arm, but that didn't, you know, that pattern didn't hold true for other disease states. So for example, uh, there was a, there was a higher number of COPD patients in the zinc group and lower in placebo. So it probably all kind of evens out when, when it's all said and done, but uh, on the whole, you know, again, the, the, the reoccurring theme in, in the, in the critique of this study is external validity and can we translate this data to, to kind of what they have. So, so then about 20% of patients uh, were completely vaccinated against COVID-19. So again, that's, that's nice that they actually looked at that data and only about 25% of patients had received one dose. So apparently if you got <laughs> vaccinated, uh, you got the whole treatment, which is kind of nice. I would argue those numbers are low compared to the United States. Uh, I guess that's probably geographically dependent, but it seems to me those numbers are kind of on the low side. Adjunctive treatment included all the things you'd see. Uh, about 40% of patients were put on steroids. Only about half were put on anticoagulants. But again, remember that only about half of these patients were also admitted to the hospital. And so, you know, again, we know that COVID does increase the risk of clotting and especially uh, venous thromboembolism. And so, um, you know, the fact that that hopefully most of the uh, hospital inpatients uh, did receive some sort of prophylactic anticoagulation, probably with the low molecular heparin, would, would be good. Um, most of the patients uh, were receiving oxygen via face mask. So about 43% of patients were on, on more than nasal cannula associated if you were in patients. And as again, I mentioned before, uh, there was no Paxlovid or Remdesivir listed. And my, I don't, I wonder, I mean, in February 22, both drugs were available. One wonders if they're just not uh, available in Tunisia while they were available in the United States. When they took a look at this grading system they had, um, basically uh, about 60% of patients were in grade three, so which means they were hospitalized and required oxygen. And then about 30% of patients were hospitalized but did not require oxygen. So only an actual relatively small percent of patients, uh, only about 6% of patients were not hospitalized. So, so then when they take a look at the, at the, the outcome, uh, they broke things up right away. So the 30-day mortality was 6.5% and, and uh, ICU admission was 5.2% in, in the zinc group. And that combined was what the combined outcome then was 10.4%. And then the placebo group, 30-day mortality was 9.2%. Emission rate was 11.3% for a combined rate of 167 So basically, it was 10.4% uh, in patients who had zinc compared to 16.7% of patients uh, who, who were on placebo. And when you add those two up, the combined outcome was statistically significant with an odds ratio of 0.58. Though the numbers, with these kind of numbers, you might imagine the 95 confidence interval is, is pretty wide. When they broke things down, uh, it even though numerically uh, mortality was lower in the zinc versus placebo, so 6.5 mortality in percent mortality in the zinc group compared to 9.2% in uh, the, the placebo group, when they actually broke things apart, it was actually the decrease in ICU admissions with a hazard ratio of 0.43 that made the difference as far as statistical significance. Now, when they pulled those apart, death rate was not difference, different between the study groups. Again, you know, that makes things, uh, from a statistical standpoint, it makes things a little dicey um, just because, again, they, they set a co prime outcome there and they set their power for that. So numerically, it certainly seemed like the numbers favored zinc uh, for 30-day for mortality, but again, just didn't reach statistical significance.
They then took a look at all these subgroups and basically found there was evidence of a positive treatment effect in almost all groups. In, in particular, uh, uh, the patients over age 65 seem to have the highest benefit uh, with this, which I guess stands to reason because they're the highest number of patients who might go on to, to progress to severe disease. Uh, the inpatient subgroup, the length of hospital stay was reduced in the zinc group from 7.1 days compared to 10.6 days. So basically about 3.5 day difference. And if you are working in a hospital in the United States, I can tell you that right now, uh, every bed is very valuable real estate. My hospital is completely overrun with uh, not just COVID, but the flu and all sorts of other stuff. So, I mean, I would argue that, that even if uh, they didn't find a whole lot of other benefit, uh, if that's the only benefit they found, that could still make a zinc a, a valuable adjunct of treatment, I think, for the, for the treatment of COVID-19. And when they looked at this smaller outpatient group, uh, the, the duration of symptoms was shorter in the zinc group. It was uh, 9.6 days in the zinc group compared to 12.8 days in the, the, the placebo group, um, uh, but that did not reach statistical significance. So again, numerically it was better, but didn't reach statistical significance, probably because they were they were underpowered to do so. So the authors basically say that in a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled study, they found that it had a significant and, and clinical meaning benefit to give patients zinc, uh, 25 milligrams BID, as far as reduction of 30-day ICU admission rate and a shorter duration of, of symptoms in outpatient as well when they gave uh, zinc for 15 days. They found the benefit was observed most notably in aged patients over age 65, which makes sense, but also in, in some of the other groups as well. So, you know, they, you know, they felt like this is something that may need to be studied a little bit more, but the bottom line was that it seemed to be uh, helpful in these patients. Now, there was a, a very, very good editorial that accompanied uh, the, the paper, and, and I, thought it was, I thought it was actually really quite well done. And uh, editorialist basically, you know, uh, talks a lot about, you know, don't get fooled again sort of stuff, you know. I mean, to, to quote the WHO, um, and, and noted that this, we've, we've really struggled in the last two or three years to find therapies that are cheap, that are safe, and that actually have a clinically significant benefit. And again, I, you know, he, he uh, you know, delineates that you know, there's lots of treatments they've tried and haven't really worked. He says that a lot of, of area nutrition has been focused on, again, using micronutrients or, you know, God help me, vitamin C and D, which of course has not been shown to do anything, you know, and, and not just for, for uh, COVID, but sepsis and all sorts of other stuff. But again, you know, the theory behind all these is that, you know, in vitro models, you know, do suggest that that higher levels of certain vitamins and, and trace elements seem to have some benefit in the immune system. And just unfortunately, those have not really ever, ever really translated to human, uh, you know, experimentation, unfortunately, it just doesn't, doesn't ever seem to work. The editorialist notes, again, then this kind of don't be fooled again, sort of thought that, you know, we really should not adopt the use of any new treatment for COVID-19 without a well done, you know, random controlled trial that really tells us what we want to do. And he's actually pretty, um, pretty uh, praiseful, if you will, of, of, of the study saying it was well done. You know, they had good outcomes. They, they, you know, explained what they were doing and really should take the place of all the retrospective and, and lower randomized uh, control studies that were had smaller numbers, basically, uh, and really should be our, our leading edge of, of what we would want to study as far as COVID is concerned. And he notes that this isn't the only study that's out there, that there's actually dozens of studies uh, actually trying to look at the effect of other micronutrients, but also uh, zinc. And there's several other studies looking at zinc. So who knows if we get another RCT that finds a similar benefit, uh, we may find that zinc becomes actually the one of the one of the treatments 
that that would actually you know be used that's relatively inexpensive that has very few side effects but i think the key is going to be if we if we follow this type of study we really need to adhere very closely to the inclusion exclusion criteria because the numerous exclusion criteria especially in the united states i i think is going to to really limit the applicability of this i think that you know we we uh, unfortunately do have a lot of patients who have bmis over 21 who do have renal insufficiency who do have hepatic insufficiency you know and, and i think that those are going to you know it's going to be really challenging and the editorialist notes pretty much the same thing that if we're going to use this data we really need to this is one of those studies that until we get another study that also shows a benefit if you are going to take this information and go yep you know i, I believe this we're going to start doing it um you really need to to, to really hue to the uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria the editorialist also notes and as i've noted before because of the relatively low number of patients the power isn't that great i mean they did find a difference but the confidence intervals are really wide so again precision is very low and knowing the exact number is 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 going to be uh, be a little bit uh, iffy and again another reason why if you're a more cautious clinician you may want to wait until another randomized control trial comes that that either uh, you know confirms or refutes this evidence and then i think we might be able to be a little more loose with with how, how to apply this data and, and, and give it to patients basically uh, they note in the study and, and he notes that the editorialist notes that there was not a whole lot of serious side effects. Not really surprised by that. You were, yes, you're taking higher doses of zinc, but only for two weeks. And in patients who don't have renal insufficiency, the odds of them developing, you know, zinc toxicity is, is actually, you know, fairly low. So I, I really wasn't all that surprised by the, by the lack of, of safety issues. They note, and the editorials notes that this is a decent study. Uh, it provides a sufficient initial evidence to consider high dose implementation, but also note that more studies are probably needed to confirm this data and that it does not take the place of standard therapy. So again, if I had a patient who met the criteria for Paxlovid, um, you know, would I give this, would I give zinc on top of it? My guess would be right now, probably not. Uh, again, we don't know if, if there is any pharmacologic or pharmacodynamic interaction of zinc and Paxlovid, and I'm not really sure I'd be willing to take the chance with a drug that has several randomized control trials showing its benefit in, in decreasing uh, progression to disease compared to this one, you know, well done, but relatively small study. So if I had to choose, I would probably take Paxlovid, but if I had a patient who refused to take Paxlovid or, or, you know, for XYZ reasons, couldn't take Paxlovid or any other known antiviral treatment, I certainly think that this is reasonable. And I think it might be reasonable even given the small numbers of patients in this study who are outpatients, that if, again, they're not going to get uh, other antiviral therapies, that zinc may be reasonable as long as they yeah, hew to the, the criteria of the study. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Wall. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, sign up today to get CE each week just for listening in. See the show notes for more information. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.